So on the Saturday before last, I had the privilege of conducting a funeral service here in the sanctuary for a family that's new to the congregation, and they asked me if I would use the 23rd Psalm as the primary text for the message. It's a natural choice, really, because it's one of the most beloved of all the Psalms. Probably the most loved chapter in the entire Bible. And, and countless people have found comfort and, and strength and hope in his verses. Maybe you have too. So if you think about it, if that's really the case, it's a shame then that we only tend to hear sermons on the 23rd Psalm at funerals. right? Because in my opinion, it really is a psalm for the living. And it's a text that you and I can apply to each and every day of our lives. So let's take a look at it together. Psalm 23, a song of David. And psalmist writes, The Lord is my shepherd. I will always have everything I need. He gives me green pastures to lie in. He leads me by calm pools of water. He restores my strength. He leads me on right paths to show that he is good. Even if I walk through a valley as dark as the grave, I will not be afraid of any danger because you are with me. Your rod and staff comfort me. You've prepared a meal for me right in front of my enemies, and you welcome me there as an honored guest. My cup is full and spilling over. Your goodness and mercy will be with me all my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. So you can see why this is such a well-loved scripture, and it's it's a text that we can turn to during times of grief and struggle where you and I can actually visualize the Lord, making us personally rest in green pastures, leading us to cool, quiet waters, and walking with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And as I said at the, that funeral that I told you about, even though I'm sure that all of you have heard the 23rd Psalm, you just maybe haven't heard it in that particular version before. And that's why I like reading it in this modern translation, because it takes something that's really very familiar to us and forces us to actually listen to the words. And more than just listen, but to actually hear them and make them personal. Because that's really vitally important to do that with all of Scripture. To make Scripture personal when you're reading it. In fact, the great reformer Martin Luther once said, all of our faith depends on personal pronouns. In other words, he's saying it's one thing to say that Jesus is a good shepherd, but it's another thing entirely to say the Lord is my shepherd like King David did. He could say, the Lord is my shepherd. When he wrote the 23rd Psalm, he could do that because David was more than a king. He was a prophet. And most of the Psalms that he composed pointed directly to Jesus as the coming Messiah. So you could say that he actually wrote the Psalms from the perspective of someone who enjoyed a very personal relationship with Jesus as the Lord of their lives. And if you think about it, though, David could have very rightly said, O Israel, the Lord is our shepherd. He didn't say that, did he? He said, the Lord, the eternal God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, is my personal shepherd. And there's an intimate relationship here. The type of relationship that I covet for each and every one of you, and one that we talk about and focus on on a regular basis. But today I think it's also important and of value to think of ourselves not just as individuals, but as a group, as a body of believers, as a a congregation. Because in reality, just like a human shepherd leads a flock, and a flock doesn't consist of just one sheep, 
in the same way our good shepherd leads us as a, a flock of sheep in his pasture. And that good shepherd has called us to live in community. And I want us to kind of use our lectionary text today to explore that idea with you because I really believe that it's the realization of that that's one of the strengths of this congregation. It's one of the things that God has really gifted us with. And it's that feeling of closeness, of genuine concern for one another that has made us not a social club, but an actual family of God, just like we sing at the end of every service. Just like that first century church. And you know, those early Christians really understood this and, and kind of acting on those insights, our Christian forefathers began to shape a community that would be what they imagined Christ's kingdom on earth would look like. And that brings me to the New Testament portion of our lectionary today from the book of Acts. It's a, a text that speaks specifically to the way that the first flock of Christians lived out their following of Jesus after his resurrection appearance. And I want to read this to you from Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. So he writes, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miracle, miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. And you know, Luke, in his recording of this book of Acts, records that these early Christians devoted themselves to sound teaching and to the breaking of bread and to prayers, but we could just simply say that they worshiped and fellowship together. And corporate worship and fellowship like that are vital in experiencing the comfort and the hope and the strength of our Christian faith. That's why in the New Testament, Christians are always identified with other Christians. And that the imagery that the Bible uses to describe this kind of essential relationship we have with Christ and with the other Christians is illustrated in terms of an assembly. In fact, the book of First Peter, he tells us, we are the flock of God, God's chosen people, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. And some of us are more peculiar than others. <laughs> the New Testament book of First Corinthians, Paul describes Christians in Corinth, essentially the same way he says of them, the body is not one member, but many. And that those many members make up one body and are to act as a family. In fact, almost 250 times in the New Testament, Christians are referred to as brothers and sisters. And these Christians, you have to realize, were from different cultures and different backgrounds and different races, because within a single early church fellowship, there would be men and women and and rich and poor and slaves and masters and, and Greeks and Romans and Jews, but they were all brothers and sisters. It didn't matter what their status was outside of the fellowship and, and in the world outside those doors because they were related to each other in Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul tells us as much in Galatians chapter 3, he says, For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. 
And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. So there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And the point is that Christians associate with and are committed to each other simply because they're Christians. That's what Christians do because that's who we are. We're a body. We're a family. We're the gathered flock. And at least that's how Christians saw themselves until about the last two decades or so. And we've kind of fallen away from that. Earlier this week I read kind of a funny little article about someone who was joking about what he called bedside Baptists or couch potato congregationalists. Or the one I thought was really funny was lazy boy Lutherans. Meaning people, meaning people of all of our different denominations who choose to sleep in on the Lord's Day and, and never attend anything but the temple of television on Sunday mornings. And I realized that he was intending it as, sat, uh, as satire because he goes on to say, many people refuse to go anywhere near a church unless their nephew is playing sheep number two in the Christmas pageant. <laughs> right? And that's true. But you know, on the other hand, his article is more than a joke when you consider that there are people out there who claim to be and call themselves Christians, but also believe that they can get more out of a walk in the woods listening to a podcast than they can from the typical Sunday morning worship service in God's house. And now, please don't mishear me. I'm all for using media to spread the gospel. In fact, right now, because our, uh, our internet service is down, Mike back here is using his own phone to broadcast this service live. So no pressure, Carolyn, now that you're done singing. You did a good job. Right? But I'm all for television and radio and Facebook and YouTube. And, and I am sincerely grateful for the folks out there who regularly log in to the church's website to hear God's word. And if you don't, for those of you that don't know, through Mike's innovations and all the things that he's done back there, and this congregation's support of sound and video and broadcasting, we have weekly listeners not just here in town, but in Lakeland, in Tampa, in Miami, we have Pennsylvania, we have listeners in Georgia, we have listeners in Canada, Germany, and a really large section of listeners all the way on the other side of the world in Tokyo, Japan. And, and I hope all of the folks out there that are listening, uh, I hope you know that we are all praying for you and you're, you're really part of our extended family. And it's really humbling to think that the Lord is using this small little congregation to reach out to so many people. It's incredible. So I absolutely believe in broadcasting the good news over the airwaves and doing it professionally so that we can continue to reach brothers and sisters that way. Maybe those, who knows where they're from, or they're in a hospital bed or a nursing home. Maybe there are folks that have to work on Sundays and and can't get to a church. And in some cases, maybe they're simply in a place, an isolated area where no church exists. Like we had, uh, for quite a while, we had one, just one single person logging in in Armenia. Who knows? And God is, is certainly sufficient to reach out and to speak to and to care for those people's needs. And, and yes, you can go to heaven without going to church. But even though it's technically possible to live the Christian life in isolation, it is not ideal. And it is certainly not the norm. Because when you become a Christian, you're called into a relationship with the Good Shepherd. But the Bible also makes it clear that we are to become part of a flock and to enter into a a close fellowship with other Christians. You see, the New Testament never divides Christians between the categories of church members and non-church members. 
all the way through, it assumes that everyone that is in Christ is a willing participant in some local assembly. It never mentions Christians who are just part of the the universal church but have no link to a local one. In fact, one scholar said, any idea of enjoying salvation or being a Christian in isolation is foreign to the New Testament writings. Because you see, wherever Christians are within range of each other in the New Testament, they meet together. Every time the Apostle Paul comes to a, a town in the book of Acts where there are no Christians, he wins converts and he immediately organizes them into a small group, a little church, and he places shepherds over them that report directly to the great shepherd in heaven. One commentator said it's a, a logical to say that you were merely part of the worldwide universal church, yet refuse to gather with the segment of that universal church that exists in your geographic area. In other words, he's saying it's silly to say that you're part of the church of Christ, but you won't go to the church that's in your backyard. He said it would be like claiming that you own a car when the fender is in Phoenix and the engine is in Tucson and the wheels are in Paradise Valley. He said then you don't have a car, you have the beginnings of the inventory for a junkyard. Because that stuff just won't function unless all the pieces are put together and the church must be together to carry out its function and its purpose too. You know, in our Wednesday night Bible study, 6.30 by the way, for those of you that don't come, we've been taking a look at spiritual gifts and we know that based on our study in the Word of God, the Bible is clear on the fact that God has given each individual Christian a spiritual gift. But one of the aspects of the study that we've looked into quite a bit is the fact that these abilities are not provided to elevate an individual. They're not provided to lift up the person that received them. Your spiritual gift wasn't designed to promote you personally or to make you feel good or to make you the envy of others. But rather, our gifts are designed and given so that as Christians, we can minister to one another for the good of the body, to build up the whole group. In fact, the, the New Testament is full of one another commandments. If you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says we are to comfort one another. 1 Thessalonians 5 says we are to build up one another. James 5.16 says we're to confess our sins to one another. And then he goes on to say that he commands us to pray for one another. And I could go on and on with those. So we have to ask ourselves the question, how do we obey those commands if we stay away from the gathering of other believers? And the truth is that we can't. Because God has designed his people, he's designed us to experience those green pastures and those quiet waters and those banquet tables of the kingdom together with other members of the flock, other Christians in our faith community. And you know, not only was that the strong emphasis of the first century church, but it was the driving force behind our congregational ancestors, the pilgrims. Right, that early group of settlers that arrived here in 1620 in hopes of making a better life for themselves and, and for their children. And they came here to stake out those green pastures and those quiet waters where they could live and, and work and flourish while at the same time being able to freely worship God and to do it in peace. And they're undoubtedly the most famous colonists in history. Their faith and and their fortitude are almost legendary. And their perseverance laid the cornerstone for this country. But more importantly, their story of courage and gratitude to God and love for one another still inspire people today. And it can actually serve as a model for us as we live out their example and their model of dependence on the Good Shepherd and their dedication to the true flock of God. 
But to do that, I think we have to kind of we have to kind of see them as they saw themselves. I think it characterized a lot. But they were they were educated Englishmen who wanted to escape religious controversy and economic problems. All those things that were plaguing their time, and they wanted to emigrate to America. They believed that membership in the state-controlled church violated their biblical principles to be true Christians, and that they had to break away and form an independent congregation that looked to the word of God rather than to the advice and the doctrines of men, who many times turned out to be wolves in sheep's clothing. But, you know, when they broke away and they formed these independent congregations, they committed wholeheartedly to time spent together, not only in working to build up this new society, but in corporate worship and in witness to the Native Americans that they encountered. And what I thought was really interesting, here's one uh, historian talking about uh, their commitment to meeting together, said their, their Sabbath services were held twice on Sundays, in addition to sermons that were often given on Thursdays, and as occasion demanded on days of thanksgiving or days of fasting, and weekly holidays called in response to God's providence. He says all were observed in a manner similar to the weekly Sabbath with morning and afternoon services, which approximate time were from 9 a.m. to noon and from 2 to 5. So you guys ready to get back to that? 9 a.m. to noon and 2 to 5? I don't know. I think I'll, I think I'll be taking a nap this afternoon, but we could talk about it. But, but they took their priority of meeting together very seriously in spite of the fact that they were in constant danger of being attacked every time they met. There was a, a visitor from the Netherlands, in fact, to the Plymouth Colony in 1627, a man named Isaac de Razier, who describes their service. He's, he's writing back home, and he says of the pilgrims, Upon a hill they have a large square house with a flat roof of thick sawn planks, upon the top of which they have six cannon. The lower part of the house they use for a church where on Sundays and usual holidays the people gather by the beat of the drum, each with his musket or flintlock. They have their cloaks on and place themselves in order, three abreast. Behind them comes the governor in his long robe, and beside him on the right hand comes the preacher in his cloak, and on the left hand, the captain with his sidearm and his cloak. And so they march in good order, and each sets his firearm down beside him. So you see, these people were determined to worship and be together to meet with God, even though all these odds are stacked against them, and even if they had to worship with their coats on and their weapons beside them, because they knew they affirmed that God himself had prepared a table for them right in the presence of their enemies. And then they needed to cherish that fact and to long for that gathering, which is really in stark contrast to how believers today often live. Where I'll be the first to admit that sometimes in, in our past, when Vicki and I have stayed at home from church because there was a little bit of snow on the roads when we lived in Pennsylvania, or when we decided to sleep in because we were just too busy from working all week. But the pilgrims, you know, had... They had a different perspective, one that we should emulate because they lived their faith out and they spent their whole lives in fellowship with the Lord and with each other. And there's a, a really great poem by William Bradford, who's actually our, our church's original namesake. This was originally Bradford Congregational Church um, that speaks to this, and I want to share it with you. It's not very long. Bradford writes, To the north or south or which way you'll wind, churches are spread and you'll pasture find. Many men of worth for learning and great fame, grave and godly to these parts here came, whose names are precious and elsewhere expressed. Oh, how these their flock did faithful care 
their labors love and works declare, and such as survive do strive the more to do like them that have gone before. Example take hereby you that shall come, and after time when their race is run, to have the gospel preached here with power, and such wolves repelled as would devour. And now with plenty their poor souls are fed with better food than wheat or angel's bread. In green pastures they themselves may place and drink freely of the springs of grace. A pleasant banquet is prepared for these of fatling things and wine upon the lees. Ho, eat, my friend, saith Christ, and freely drink, he bade. For I myself, for you, have this banquet made. I think that's a beautiful poem. And with that, that imagery from Bradford's poem and from King David's 23rd Psalm, it actually takes us from outside in the green pastures into the palace from those fields into the guest chamber, from the banks of the river into the banquet hall. And it pictures a God who is not just a good shepherd, but who is our gracious host. As our God invites us, all of us, all the sheep of his pasture into his house, where we can dwell with him and with each other in unhindered and peaceful fellowship. And knowing that, knowing that that's our final destination should define everything that we do in the meantime should encourage us all the more to spend time with the Lord and with each other and not forsake the gathering of his people where we can encounter our living God and worship with others in this place where God has promised to indwell our praises and where his love and his grace is known in the, the words that we hear, the songs that we sing, the bread and the wine that we're about to share together that God gives us for our comfort and for our strength and for our hope. So today as we Come to take the bread and share the wine together as a body of believers. I ask you, don't miss the point of the 23rd Psalm. Don't miss the point of our shepherd Jesus calling us, just like he did the first century Jews and our ancestors, the pilgrims, not to a ritual, but to a relationship with him and with one another, because in that relationship, he gets all of the glory and we get the fellowship and the joy that we so desperately seek today and always. Will you pray with me? Father God, it, it is right always and everywhere, Lord, to give you thanks and praise as we come to you, Father, asking to break down all the barriers that divide us. We thank you, Father, that you unite us in your truth and your love so we can confess your name and we can sit at one table and so that we can serve you in one common ministry and that we can remember together the perfect sacrifice of your son for the sin of the world. So come, Lord, now we ask and continue your transforming work in this place and in this time that eyes may be opened that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so, gracious Lord, remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation, Lord, this bread and this wine and ask you to pour out your Spirit upon us and upon these your gifts, that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.